Hello and welcome to episode number five of European UFOs. I'm your host Sebastian and if you like this episode then please make sure to subscribe and leave a review, it really helps. While UFO sightings are by no means few and far between, they often take the form of one-off events paired with seemingly unique characteristics. Not only do UFOs appear in all sorts of shapes and sizes, they also occur in different places at different times from deserted country roads to bustling urban centres. At face value, UFO data present a complex, if not to say messy picture, that is difficult to make sense of. However, in Northwestern Ireland, there's one scientist who has taken up that challenge. Dr. Eamon Ansbro, Director and Research Astronomer at Kingsland Observatory, has been studying the UFO phenomenon for more than 30 years. His research concludes that our planet is under automated surveillance, using hundreds of probes operating along orbital tracks that are synchronized with the Earth's movement. With positive results, this conclusion has been field-tested in Ireland and other countries. Its implications, however, are undoubtedly of global significance. Hello, Eamon. It's great to have you today. Um, how are you doing? Thanks for inviting me, Sebastian. I look forward yeah. to this uh, interview. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, me too. Um, a lot, actually, because and we're going to get into that later, but I actually grew up in the area where a lot of your research is focused on, so that's um, of particular interest to me. Um, Eamon, you are a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society of UK SETI, and with that background, how did you start working on the UAP UFO issue? I'm asking in particular because traditionally SETI um, hasn't shown too much of an interest in UAPs. So I think it's quite interesting if you could elaborate a bit on how you got started in, on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Well, independently from SETI, well before uh, uh, I, I actually got involved with SETI, I, I, I mean, the only involvement I had initially was back in the early 1990, reading the you know proceedings from every conference. But then I gradually got involved then by the year uh, two, uh, 2001. Um, I, I suppose, uh, I think during the, uh, okay, with the UAP research, okay, how did I get into it? Yeah, well, actually, it was through another astronomer, funny enough. Uh, his name was Herman von Belgium, uh, Belgium astronomer, um, director of uh, one of the uh, establishments here in the Republic of Ireland. And uh, I knew him very well um, because I used to give presentations uh, to that establishment. Um but one day he said to me, I think it was around 1990, uh, he said, look, we're getting, because he knew my background professionally was in meteorology as well as astronomy. All right. Um, so I had, you know, hadn't worked for the Ministry of Defence in the UK uh, as a meteorological observer when I was a young guy. And then that led into more advanced work in meteorology and then astronomy then came into my life as well. Um, so, um, so I have an understanding about atmospheric physics. Um, I'm a trained, sorry, I'm a professionally trained observer. All right, so uh, that's really important when you're dealing with the UFO area. Okay, indeed. Uh, and, yeah. then, and then, from an astronomical point of view, um, 
I'm trained in that area. I have some degrees in astronomy as well. And um, I, I also have the skills dealing with design and instrumentation as well in a wide range of areas. Um, so th that's another key thing as well. Uh, so, you know, you'd meet a lot of astronomers. It's all theoretical work. In my case, yes, I had theory, of course, but I also had the practical and hands-on to it. So I'm coming from an older era where I'm able to make things, design and make, um, which is sort of a <laughs> rather lost in these days with younger generation, you know. Um, <clears throat> so how did I get into it? Right. Well, Herman von Belgen, uh, he told me that for about three years, uh, they were getting telephone calls from the public about these balls of light in the sky. And I was actually looking for, co co as a coincidence, I was actually looking for another project to do. And I said, look, I'll take this on, you know, seeing I have that background. So I did. He gave me all the telephone numbers of people, witnesses to these balls of light. And uh, it was about 20 people I met all together. And I was totally confused of what they were seeing. It didn't make any sense at all uh, to what I knew about in meteorology, astronomy, all these areas. All right. Um, so I decided, I uh, said, well, uh, as I'm totally confused, I don't want to leave it at that. You know, I, I'm really, really curious. Any scientist should be curious. And uh, so I looked into it further. And in fact, I thought the best thing actually was to, um, was to meet many people. Now, how am I going to do that? And particularly when you're dealing with balls of light, what people are seeing. Now, by the way, I, UAP or the old name UFOs, I was familiar with, all right, um, from way back. Um, <clears throat> however, uh, I then um, met, um, uh, I set up a meeting uh, which ended up with 70 people turned up to it. Uh, I was really surprised, and thanks to Herman von Belgen, he did advertise this, but without using his establishment, uh, that people would come along to this hotel. And so from there, I met many other people, and I decided, well, I think I'd better do this on a monthly basis because I want to meet many, many, many people. So there's a statistical side of it, trying to get data on all this, and that was my approach. Um, well, it should be the approach of any scientist just to get data. But in this area, we're dealing with a subjective situation, which on a statistical basis may show that there's a common features to it all, and in which there was. And actually, I had researched out um, other uh, centers where you could get statistical uh, reports uh, from the US, um, the UK, and the French as well. I got about 15,000 uh, reports, which were either multiply witnessed or single witnesses. Uh, there were recordings as well in that. But that was enough, actually, to show that uh, this was common um, throughout the world. It wasn't just in America. I got stuff from, well, eventually from South America and uh, Europe as well, and also uh, as far as Australia and New Zealand. Um, <clears throat> so... Um, so I was realizing, yes, that this is really common throughout the globe, uh, these characteristics of these balls of light or UAPs or whatever. All right. But yeah. what I 
Yeah. So also what was also extraordinary that it was more than the ball of light that people were seeing in some occasions. They were seeing a construct. They were seeing a shape to it. And that also interested me as well. Then uh, there were some, uh, how shall we, witnesses that it had a, such a meaning for them. So it wasn't just, a, you know, you could say, well, a street, say a car light at a distance. Well, what's the big deal? It's a car light. But in this case, there was some other phenomena involved in this. And uh, I'm not a psychologist, but, I, 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 you know, you have to be true to what you're observing. You have to take in not just the light, which I'd be used to dealing with photometric analysis of, of stellar light. But in this case, you're, you have to open it up to a larger reality, basically. So I had actually studied um, other historically other um, um, how should we, other scientists back in the past, which were involved in metaphysics. And metaphysics is where you're dealing with the, the, the larger reality, the real reality of life itself, um, and not just uh, physics itself. Uh, I mean, there was a complete uh, transformation culturally back in the 1830s from metaphysics into physics. You know? So, <clears throat> yeah. In, indeed. No, yeah, th thanks a lot for elaborating on that. And I think what makes your work really important and also unique in many respects is that you were looking for patterns and also at statistical, um, you know, correlations within that data set. Because I think what happens a lot with the um, UFO topic is that you have these, um, you know, huge sightings occasionally, and, you know, they're witnessed by multiple people, but they um, often occur or seem to occur as one-off events. And um, I don't know, to my mind and perhaps to, um, for many other people, this kind of one-off character makes it a very kind of intangible phenomenon. So I think your work is very important in that you were looking for patterns and actually showing that, hey, this isn't just down to unique one-off events, but there's actually an underlying structure here. And um, so we're now at the stage where you, you know, it caught your interest, you gather data. How did you go about analyzing this rather large data set? Yeah, well, back in those days, I had a very old computer operating system, you can imagine, from the 1980s, and using Fortran, you know, if anybody remembers Fortran. Uh, so, okay, um, I broke everything into categories, and actually it was very useful to be aware of reading uh, the likes of J. Helen Hynek's works as well, who came up with that standardization to do with the Close Encounters uh, so I use that as part of it, and also with the breakdown, um, that actually helped me to realize that, uh, wow, there's a lot more to this than just a ball of light. Yeah, brilliant. And um, so you discovered patterns, but what kind of overall theory guided you in discovering these patterns that you then um that you were then able to determine did um dutton's role roy dutton's mm -hmm. um work play a role in that um because reading yours quite important 2001 paper i think which set a lot of things in motion i um i it's just one of the names i came across so i thought i'd mm -hmm. ask you about him sure 
Well, I, mm. I wrote uh, a number of articles back in 1992 dealing with patterns and cycles of the UAP. And also I did some 3D modeling as well of the most likely routes that uh, now this is a complete hypothesis at the time. Uh, you know, this is the way we work in science uh, that, okay, if it is extraterrestrial advanced and even taking the, uh, taking the mask off to do with technologies of the future and not to be limited by the physics that we know at the time. And, you know, could they well be um, un- have an understanding of their planetary affairs uh, wherever they came from? So they were able to expand out. So if you're expanding out from a star system and go to another star system that's 50 light years away, uh, you're not going to be using the electromagnetic spectrum for communications. And it's very unlikely you're going to be using conventional rocketry <laughs> chemical rocketry it's completely out of the question um so for any civilization civilization to evolve well that's my own opinion of course so you'd have to be using some sort of faster than light travel uh, using uh, some sort of faster than light communication type system so this was the model i worked on to do with the uh, the most likely routes of uh, within 60 light years, because at the time, um, from uh, actually the, the data at the time to do with stars uh, mm-hmm. beyond the solar system to get accurate astrometric readings, uh, photometric, whatever, and movements was actually still limited. Uh, so I, I actually only got about 60 light years, dealing with about 300 stars altogether. Um, so that was one aspect to it. And I, uh, so those two articles came out in 92, 93. And um, I knew actually that, um, oh, yes, it, it was actually Roy Dutton in the UK. He was an aerospace engineer. And he actually seen my articles and contacted me. And we ended up actually joining forces. So I uh, worked with him uh, seven, uh, well, Certainly, when I I was at his place, I, I planned that I'd mm-hmm. I spent a number of days. You know, uh, he, he could see where I was coming from. I could see where he was coming from. Um, Roy had done this. Sorry, Roy Dunner had done this independently for me, of course. And uh, I said, "Look, I can support you what you're doing because I think I like your theory. Um, it's uh, uh, I think it's a bit more mature than what I've been doing." Um, so that's what we did. And uh, I also wanted uh, Roy to – Roy Dutton wasn't a person, how shall we, into traveling. He was retired. Uh, it it um, very much a theoretician. But, of course, he's coming from the space oh, – sorry, the aerospace industry as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, – and uh, he wasn't too happy of uh, putting his name on – papers and you know uh, where uh, uh, you know he he was it's like there you you know you'll probably realize that we're dealing with a subject matter at that time 30 years ago which was either it didn't exist in people's minds or it was just a big joke and here we are trying to do serious work on this 
Um, so how do you how do you you know break that <laughs> that worldview? Yes. Um, so anyway, look, I took it on, and um, we integrated some of my uh, uh, my research that I did, which did fit some of Roy's as well. So we decided, look, we'll call it your theory, the Dutton astronautical theory. <laughs> uh, however, <laughs> since then, I've actually advanced it even further, uh, and I will have a paper coming yes. out in due course, which goes beyond all that again. Uh, so that's where I'm at now. Yeah, excellent. And um, could you describe what Dutton's and the, your theory was about and how it relates to orbital tracks and the idea of um, UAPs potentially surveying this planet. Okay, well, the inspiration for me was uh, Professor James MacDonald. Uh, he was a meteorologist, and he, in 1968, at the con- <laughs> surprisingly, uh, a UAP or UFO as it was at the time, congressional hearing, uh, wanted the mm-hmm. conclusion on this whole UFO situation. So he, and I always remember the quotation. Uh, I mean, I would have been a very young guy at that time. Oh, I, I, I didn't, I didn't know that at the time, but it was just during when, in the early nineties, when you're researching this, you know, who else has been working in this field? You know, very, very few. Um, <clears throat> so he, he concluded that there was a tentative surveillance of the earth by UFOs. And that's the quotation to the Congress. Mm. Um, but then you have this huge gap in between then of whatever, 50 years before we could develop it any yeah. further. And uh, so in your work with Dutton, um, what, what exactly did your theory uh, conclude or hypothesize? Because I, what, what I found really intriguing when I, when I read your seminal 2001 paper is that actually, so the entire idea from what I grasp behind your theory is that you're able to predict certain events and um i think that's that's really fascinating and sort of also be um you know the standard of any scientific theory really sure well we're not predicting anything just to correct Mm. you there we're Mm -hmm. providing windows of opportunity when Mm -hmm. these events may or may not occur and it Mm. it's all based on accurate timings of the witnesses and that was an issue because at the time when we're uh, inserting all the data from, well, the, I mean, the, the ideal situation is to have multiply witnessed observations. Um, so uh, it, it came down to about 1,300, which was actually a rather a limitation, it's really a small um, data set. Um, I would much prefer if it was about 10,000. So what it is, uh, uh, Roy, I think more of Roy's stuff, actually, we would see it as a controlled autonomous surveillance of the Earth by the UAP. And this was based on past data reports going back to the 1880s. So you're in pre-aeronautical times. Now, mind you, before... 1900 or before you know the wright brothers flew in 1903 i think it was you know Mm -hmm. there was an interpretation of things in the sky and there's even a history behind that as well going way back hundreds of years 
so you have to take in the cultural side of this as well. <clears throat> so, yeah, so what we uh, came up with was uh, uh, something that was testable. Uh, so we had uh, produced um, computerized timing graphs from the model, but for the model to work, it had to work within plus or minus 20 minutes. If it was outside that, it was, you know, it's just, th these would be just outliers. So anyway, that comes back to the 1,300 reliable data points, all right? <clears throat> so we tried it out, actually, for the first time in, um, oh, let me think. Oh, yeah, I think it was February, February 97. And I wanted to make sure that not only was it uh, multiply witnessed, but also recorded as well. And we actually invited um, UK television over as well, because I had heard that they were doing uh, a documentary on the UAP area. Uh, so we ended up with about 20 people altogether. We actually did get our first recordings, and that was shown on television in both the UK and the US, I understand. Um, but interesting enough, it was very disappointing because they were only showing very short footage of this. And they had their own. It's like you're you're in a situation because of the worldview of thinking, the perception of 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 the world itself. It didn't allow actually that this is does not fit our reality. So you have to think in a different way. But unfortunately, I, I just found at the time so many people conditioned that they uh, they seem to be heavily influenced by, you know, previous um, historical situations that this doesn't exist. So you can imagine the dilemma one is in here. And I, I did criticize the, the, ed uh, the, the editors behind this, which I wasn't involved with. I mean, I didn't have editorial discretion. But that was the first mm. time we did it scientifically. That's the point I'm trying to make. No, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you can still see this conditioning life in action, perhaps even more than ever, you know, with um, one of the most groundbreaking stories that just came out last last month, actually, on the legacy media, really not picking it up. So, you know, speaking of um, David Grush revelations, and then also the congressional hearings. So but I think that's, you know, a topic of a different debate. But I think the conditioning you refer to is still very much... Um, life and action so um you're according to your work and your theory if i understood it correctly there are these orbital tracks around the planet that are synchronized right with the rotation of the earth mm -hmm. and um what what role do um do intersections play there so you have different tracks going around the earth and at intersections certain things happen, if I understood correctly, or are, like, or could, are likely to happen? Yeah, we discovered um, 660 orbital tracks around the Earth. So if you can imagine, they're like hoops. They're at a distance, well, it depends where the, the construct is, the intelligent construct is, uh, at about um, 20, uh, 26 kilometers so it's actually below the borderline of space and the atmosphere. So it's just inside by a few kilometers, all right? That was a surprise. So they're not actually using gravitation 
in the in the strict sense naturally they're just like artificial satellites all right <clears throat> so um so where do we go with this sorry i i'm um, no, I was just asking you what the um, what what potential role intersections play there in your in your model when these uh, different yes. orbital tracks cross. Uh, yes, yeah. well, we actually checked out um, uh, and were there for either recordings or witnessing um, uh, twenty seven locations altogether in eight countries. Now, in some of these countries, we'd only have one person there which we weren't too happy about. But uh, in the what was it, in Ireland, the UK, France, Italy, uh, we had multiple witnesses to it. And that actually supported the model when the event occurred. We actually, you know, like in anything in science, if you make one, we'll say, a discovery, then you're building up your knowledge for maybe there's something else. And that's the way we did it, incrementally. So there was incremental discoveries as we went along. And we were finding that the model uh, was sort of working, and on other occasions it wasn't working. And, and I think this was due to the, 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 the data input. It just wasn't enough, because when you're dealing with 1,300 mm -hmm. reports, and then you have 660 orbital tracks. You're only talking about two points yeah. on a track. Yeah. So, you know, we would love to have six or eight, ten, you know, many as yeah. possible, of course. Absolutely. So it's the idea behind things, um, events potentially happening at these intersections, that there's one delivery uh, track for probes and one recovery track am i summarizing this correctly so there's one track that delivers a probe and then the other one at that intersection potentially picking up the probe and that's yes. the most and that's the most likely location then where you could potentially um see um a probe yes or a craft. it's very it's a very similar method to that was used with the apollo mission back in the late 60s uh now, we're not saying, when I say we, I mean, I'm speaking to the third person here. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the same craft that's delivering and retrieving. Uh, our opinion is that when I went through it with Roy Dutton at the time, was that we thought it might be two craft here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, two separate craft. Exactly what you mentioned there, Sebastian. Um uh, we also had unusual situations would occur at an event where, yes, multiply witnessed, we got recordings, but then we would get a report in. And by the way, I, I made sure this was going out to the media. You know, it wasn't just a, a private situation. I wanted the media to be involved in this, to, you know, to have many, many people come into these events. And we successfully did that. And in one event that actually happened in Sligo, County Sligo in the Republic of Ireland, which you'll be familiar with, mm -hmm. um, is that uh, there was one event where it happened in Loch Key, near Boyle in County Roscommon, but it also happened 30 kilometres outside of that, like another construct uh, happened at around the same time. And we were puzzled by that. And the only thing we could come up with was that if we're dealing with the probes, these would be monitoring-type probes, reconnoitering, 
at the time of the event. And where at the same time you have another object that's witnessed 30 kilometers away, but it was a different type of construct, different shape to it. That the only thing we could figure out that it may be an occupied craft. It wasn't just an artificial probe of some sort. So it may be occupied, could be piloted. I don't know. But I, I'm giving you that as an example of the incrementalization of discoveries. We think this is how they may do it. If there's something of interest at the time, they will go outside the actual track. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks, thanks for explaining. Um, so a lot of your research focused on the Lockheed area. And um, given that that's the area where I uh, coincidentally also grew up, could you perhaps um, expound a bit on that? What's so interesting about that area and what did your field work show? Well, interested of, I had a history some years before uh, relocating to the Lockheed area. And I based it on a foundation historically of West Cork uh, because it was there actually that the significant amount of research was done. Uh, witnesses, the modeling came into position. That's where the, uh, we tested it out in the early days and it was working on three occasions. However, I heard through others that there was another part of the country, uh, 200 250 kilometers away that similar type events were occurring <clears throat> so i actually got an invitation by the town commissioner from boyle through indirectly through others and came up and i honestly thought there'd be only five or six people that would be interested i was amazed there were 70 people turned up and it was like good god that, you know, they can't be all off their heads. You know, there, there's something <laughs> of really serious interest here. And indeed there was. Yeah. And I, I met about 15 witnesses after that. And uh, I found some of the sightings here through these witnesses absolutely extraordinary. They were even better than what I was getting in West Cork. Anyway, I had to make up my mind. I, I came up then a second time, two months later. Uh, I discussed it with Roy Dutton at the time what was going on here in Lock Key and uh, he reminded me you know he said look look at the tracks they're actually running through Lock Key I said oh my god that's amazing uh, so so I thought right so there was so then uh, came up again did another presentation there was about 40 people this time uh, it was all in the media here locally and then I decided okay I've got to come up with some instrumentation. So I did. So I knew at that mid-December of 1997, there was going to be an event occurring. Uh, so especially came up, I had other colleagues that had traveled as well uh, in the hope that this event would happen. And sure enough, we actually got our first recording of the UAP. Oh, that's amazing. And and, and yeah. not only that, it was within plus or minus 20 minutes. It fitted the model. Wow. And secondly, uh, because there was uh, quite a bit of media attention at the time, I mean, in a more localized way, um, but uh, uh, we found out that through the um, surveillance that some of the orbital tracks were also intersected at the same time in two other locations 
in Ireland, like it was if it was shared tracks. It's about the best way I can put it. They were sharing these tracks, you know. So I knew that well beforehand. And lo and behold, didn't we did get not recordings, but from others uh, actually had seen this other event. Uh, because you have to realize we, we only had a very certain amount of manpower, you know, <laughs> all voluntary. <Yeah. laughs> but uh, it did confirm the other uh, location. Yes, they actually did also. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is um, I felt fairly confident that uh, I think it was two months later, it actually went on national television. It was on the, the Late Late Show. And uh, so I was I was delighted about that, uh, that we could expose ourselves to something that uh, was, a, you know, an issue from a, a worldview for enormous amount of people. You know. Yeah. Um, well, as I told you before the interview, um, I'm very familiar with the area because I um, spend a lot of hours around Lock Key, walk, going for walks with our three dogs. So, And it is, um, just to give our uh, listeners perhaps a flavor of the area, it is a very enchanting place i mean it's just uh, you know that beautiful lake surrounded by the forest park and um yeah it's 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 really lovely and even as a kid i always had a feeling that it's i think the best word to describe it really is an enchanting yeah and um speaking of which i mean um you know not to get get into muddy waters here but um obviously ireland is um kind of well known for its fairy lore and you know rich folklore um is there any indication that um, ireland has more of these intersections which then could potentially be the backbone of that kind of folklore that's something i was wondering as i was researching your work on the intersections well, Ireland is actually not is not unique in this. Um, uh, okay, I, I mean, right. we we only discovered uh, what was it five intersections in Ireland, right. but the UK has multiple intersections. Germany, mm-hmm. uh, all the countries have. Um, so Ireland is not unique in this. And do um, crop circles and other you know phenomena that are usually associated with the um, UFO? topic do they play a role in this so do crop circles for instance occur in proximity to these intersections is there any evidence to suggest that or uh well i think dealing with the crop circles it's so spread out and particularly those counties in in the uk you know wilshire i think is probably one of the most popular spots um but to have something that's accurate in the intersections uh you know because you're dealing with i was going to say the manifestation of so many crop circles you know spread mm-hmm. out over somerset what is it wilshire Ashur, yeah. Wessex, these places. Uh, uh, yeah so the interest i mean yes there are intersection intersections there uh but i you know you can't really say well is there a correlation with it yeah i, I don't have a, i don't have an answer for that one no, but I think that's uh, completely fair. And, um, you know, if it's not, if we can't really back it up by science, it just remains a theory. So that's that's a completely fair, fair answer there. Um, so when you were doing this work and then you published some of it, how did your colleagues respond to it? 
I mean, it also got some media coverage. So what was the general feedback from academia? Well, the okay, uh, from a media point of view, when um, the recordings were shown on the Late Late Show, uh, there was a response from the media. And uh, unfortunately, the response wasn't good. Uh, there was, mm. I, I could, I mean, I, I really get irate with the sniggering that goes on, and I can tell it, um, you know. And it's like I felt actually after a while, I think I did a number of, I, I was on television uh, twice, I think radio two or three times uh, here in Ireland. Um, and to be honest with you, I, I really felt, well, do I need all this? all the sniggering going on. I'm trying to do scientific serious work here. Maybe there's such a dichotomy here we're dealing with psychologically that maybe it's not the right time. Maybe in 20 years it might be the right time for this when people sort of wake up to this reality. Um, So that's to answer your question after the first recordings came out. That's before the paper was published now. Oh, right. So, yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, so so how was the reaction to your paper, the 2001 paper, which I believe was part of a you know conference proceedings, if I'm not mistaken? That's correct, yes. This was a whole lead-up to this. So uh, you can imagine if one was trying to provide a paper of this nature, it would be fairly sub- substantial. It could take at least 20 or 30 pages, we'll say. Mm-hmm. But you, because of the nature of the conference, it was an OSETI conference. It was a different aspect of setting. Yeah. And because it was under SPEA, the Society for Photo-Optical Instrumentation Engineers, uh, it's, a, it's an annual event, um, is that you're only limited to three or four pages. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, the only thing we could do here is actually show some background historically and then lead into an, a theory, but not going into all the dynamics behind. We just, you just couldn't do it um, unless mm-hmm. you had a an appendix that was about thirty pages. You know, so so the only thing was to show a location with results, and we knew the location, the best one of the best ones, because uh, um, Project Hestel, and we knew it had been going for a number of years. I also knew. Uh, Dr. Erland Strand at the time, and we felt that was the best one to use as a location for these events. Yeah, I actually just had him on the podcast a few episodes ago, and um, yeah, the work has been doing there since the 80s. It's really groundbreaking and some fantastic results there. And um, so when you when you presented the paper, um, were your colleagues generally interested? Because I'm, I have a background in academia, so I know how these conferences go. And you know, sometimes you know, silence is also quite telling in many respects. So, how did they, um, how did they uh, react to this? Perhaps rather groundbreaking uh, Not too work good. of yours. Sorry, oh. <laughs> not too good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, first of all, you have to understand psychology of people. There was about five hundred. Uh, at this conference, yeah, a lot of interest in SETI at the time. So when you're coming out with a paper that's, uh, how shall I put it? Because SETI is so transfixed on the electromagnetic spectrum 
and you know picking up signals away from the earth in other words they're looking for signals some etc beyond the earth beyond the atmosphere what i was dealing with was in within the atmosphere it's like in our backyard now i was only hypothesizing this so when i presented it was about 30 minutes i could actually see in the front people going white all right (laughs) it's a funny it's a funny feeling that you could you you could i could see but i just kept going on i thought well Okay, the reaction after was, okay, number one, I wasn't invited to the dinner. A person came up to me, and that that was the first reaction. Number two, they had their dinner, (laughs) sure, but it was the next morning, and I'll I'll say his name out, um, Professor Harowitz from Harvard, who were into optical SETI. You can check him out. But he mm-hmm. came to me and he said, look, we have a problem with your presentation. 50% of the people at dinner, it was the talking point at the dinner, which I wasn't witness to, <laughs> thought that I had perpetrated a, a hoax on the community. That was number one. The other 50% said, well, this guy has data. He's showing it. So there must be something in it. So there was absolute confusion here. Then the the third day, which is the final day of the three-day conference, I went, uh, now, typically when you're at these type of conferences, you have a panel at the end, you know, for further Q&A or whatever from the audience. Um, So like some others, I went up uh, the avenue, you know, towards the panel. You know, there was two or three others in front of me. And uh, so it was my turn. I, I said, look, I understand there's a problem with my paper, but just to let you know, I have no problem at all with it. I have the data on this. And there was another reaction to this. Uh, Actually, it was Paul Harowitz (laughs) again. He stood up up from the panel. I I think I'm okay to say this because it's all historical. I don't know if he's still alive, but he stood up and came right down to me and stroked me on the shoulder. He was really irate with me being there. This was upsetting people. I was a threat. All I could put it down, I was a threat to the establishment of SETI, what was going on. Then when it finished, the chairman came down to me, and his name is uh, Stuart Kingsley. So I mentioned these names. They're real people. All right. And he said, look, uh, uh," he said, look, uh, he repeated again, look, we have a problem with your paper. We kind of get this. We're not going to get this. You're not going to get this published. And secondly, I said to him, I have no problems with the paper. I have all the data on this. Well, he said, well, we assumed your paper was going to be the same as everybody else's, meaning that uh, because we had that assumption, we had a committee on the in uh, the inward flow of papers that would come in mm-hmm. proposals or applications for, to, to give a presentation mm-hmm. and our committee didn't have time to look at your paper so we assumed it was like everybody else's well i said look that's your problem i tell you yeah. i had a lot i was all by myself on this and by the way yeah. i'm pretty empowered and strong on this stuff and i won't yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't i don't sit I, i'm not going to be a victim to this if no, and, and one truth. shouldn't. 
Yeah, exactly. And one shouldn't be because, you know, in an, an academic discourse is there to test different ideas against the available data and not to, you know, promulgate certain ideologies. So it's, uh, it's a completely fair um, statement. And, you know, if you can't do that within the scope of an academic conference, then where can you? you know? So you, you should be able to present scientific theories there. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, was all, I also uh, understood before I was yeah, going go there that I was going to deal with a situation where UAP, UFOs don't exist. All right, that's number one. Because the worldview was as it is, that this either didn't exist, SETI had never looked in, in, in this at all. So I had to use a different language here. Mm. I actually changed anything to do with UFO or UAP as AOP, Anomalous Observational Phenomena. So AOP is all over the paper. Number two, I used interstellar probes. Now, that's acceptable because there were previous papers back in the 60s dealing with interstellar probes that government that would enter in the solar system uh there's some very there's some, i think there's some well-known uh, papers at the time the brain uh gosh i forget his name now Braith, Braithway. uh no i can't remember well it was oh, back right. in the early 60s uh showing the replication yeah. of a probe and so forth um so we have a i mean for them it's a dilemma for me, it's not, because what I decide is that because they were refusing the paper, I tell you, the, uh, behind the scenes, there were the majority didn't want this paper. Number two, others had seen the uh, sorry, others had seen the presentation, and in their opinion, there was something in it. I can mention some names: Dr. Massimo Theodorani to um, uh, Dr. Scott Stride, uh, Hoover, mm -hmm. guy called Hoover, who was the head of the Origins, dealing with NASA, I think it was, uh, and stuff like that. So um, eventually uh, I was asked, I think because of these others, uh, it was decided that, okay, look, we better dilute this paper. We'd be, as they say in another language, water it down somehow to, to make it more palatable. Right, so so I did, and uh, what you have actually is the result of it, but it was a lot more comprehensive than that. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, no, I actually I also gave I also gave up. Uh, I think it was after about yeah. three or four months. I sort of gave. I said, "Oh, they're not going to publish this." So, yeah. and it was two weeks after I got out of the blue uh, that they would yeah. accept the paper, but that was diluting it over a number of you know, uh, incre um, increments. Yeah. yeah. Iterate, well, perhaps, um, perhaps a change is on the horizon because this year in March, I believe it was, Avi Loeb and um, Sean Kirkpatrick published a paper that um, is uncannily similar in many respects to um, your theory and your work. And um, just to quote a certain passage here, they uh, refer to the, and this is the quote, 
um, the possibility that an artificial interstellar object could potentially be a parent craft that releases many small probes during its close passage to Earth, an operational um, construct not too dissimilar from NASA missions. So this is in 2023. Um, so... Having read that paper, one could potentially be optimistic that at least in academic circles, um, the um, topic is becoming more acceptable. And um, and I think I think if one looks closely, it is with um, you know the new journal Liminal as well being uh, being a platform where serious scientists can publish their work on on this. So. Um, you know, perhaps to wrap up this section on an optimistic note, I think um, I think it, let's hope it is possible in the future to um, to um, yeah get into more serious work and publish this in in academia. I think that that would be very very good. Um, tell me a bit about um, how. In the field, because you know your work in, in, in the observatory in Kingsland Observatory plays a big role in this. How you got about um, kind of setting up the um, fieldwork infrastructure to um, track uh, UAPs and to investigate this issue further? Well, as you probably know, um, did set up instrumentation fairly sophisticated. Um, so you're dealing with an all-sky camera system near Lock Key, mm. and then there's two tracking platforms. The two tracking platforms are basically uh, two other similar instruments, but they're more powerful, uh, so you can get close-ups. And also, uh, it, the, the range of instrumentation has been desi- was designed at the time back in 2000 and then executed in 2001, 2002. Um, so it's over 20 years old. But uh, in that, uh, I'm using visible recordings, visible and also infrared. And I also introduced uh, gamma ray detectors as well. Um, also, having the two tracking platforms at a distance apart gives you the triangulation and therefore the distance to an object when it's tracking at the same, when both are tracking at the same time. Um so we've got a number of recordings. Uh, some of this um, material has been published um, over the years, uh, not in papers because it, it would have been rejected. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've gone into other authors' books. Um, so I was quite happy to. I was approached on this, and, you know, I, I provided whatever is needed for that, for those books. Um, it's like when you're rejected in your papers, you come out with a book. You know, that's just, this is, this is yeah. the, <laughs> that's the norm. Yeah, yeah. I, I know how it goes. Yeah. So <laughs> I've, actually gone, and, I've actually yeah, gone yeah. further. I've gone further than uh, that uh, because uh, uh, there about 2016, uh, I decided, like, well, because we're dealing with an intelligence here, how would we communicate? So, uh, so, uh, so actually, I work with another uh, scientist. His name is Dr. Hugh Deasy. Uh, he's an astrophysicist. He used to work with ESA for about 30 years, European Space Agency. Uh, but uh, both uh, Dr. Hugh Deasy and myself, we think outside the box. And he was well aware of the whole SETI situation, uh, the way they're operating. 
So we're assuming that we're dealing with an intelligence here that's uh, doing a surveillance around the Earth. How can we do the communications? So actually, so we actually uh, conceived a design of how we could do this. And we've actually, um, well, we've had a number of failures uh, in the early stages uh, because we're leading into what's called quantum superluminal communications. That is faster than light communications. Uh, again, in physics, that's not acceptable because they're saying relativity just does not fit with mm -hmm. this. Well, but if you're dealing with the quantum mechanic type world, then it does fit. And that's what we're doing. We're in quantum mechanics now. Um, so we're, um, we've still got some time to go yet. We did some tests there last year. Uh, they didn't work again. Uh, I'm optimistic that, well, both uh, QT7s are optimistic that we learn from our failures. And uh, because I understand no one has actually done this before in the world, uh, you know, faster than light communications. Uh, there seems to be huge resistance because of the physics or the current historical physics that is there. So you have to go into the whole QM area. Uh, so, yeah, so that's that's where we're at. I think by next year, what do we do? Yeah, I think by next year when we do the next test, because we're actually modifying the system now, uh, we've learned from previous times that we might strike gold. And, I mean, what we're trying to achieve, Sebastian, is the precursor before the QSC. Uh, the precursor mm -hmm. is uh, telephone, anti-telephone mm -hmm. tech methodology. Uh, mm -hmm. So in other words, we're looking for time latency. Oh. Uh, if we could achieve, say, a quarter of a second or a second ahead in time or, or in the past or whatever. We're not dealing with nanoseconds here. We need to have something substantial here uh, for yeah. to lead into the next step. I mean, what I do really appreciate is that, you know, stemming from your work, finding these patterns, you then, you know, thought through the consequences as well. Okay, so if there are, you know, UAP craft in our atmosphere, how did they get here? And the only way to really, I mean, it kind of brings it to the conclusion, well, it has to be faster than light, FTE, um, technology. Otherwise, it's probably not possible. They didn't use chemical rockets, at least, you know, and this is something I never really understood about the SETI approach focusing on radio waves and the electromagnetic spectrum because, it, I mean, this is like, um, you know, going back to the Stone Age to communicate with uh, someone who, you know, an intelligence that, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me and never did, and I don't really understand where this is coming from, but probably that's... Um, you know, subject of a different um, debate. And um, I think the um, great value in your, um, in, in, in your research in, um, into QSC is that it would facilitate instant communication, you know, as opposed to um, the electromagnetic spectrum where whatever an uh, uh, extraterrestrial intelligence receives from us is, you know, thousands of thousands of years old, any potential signals so. Um, I think I think that's that's really fascinating, and um, it does make me wonder, though. And perhaps this is also a good way of concluding um, concluding our chat. Um, do you think we are ready 
let's say, this work, do you think we're ready as a species to communicate with um, with whatever might be visiting us? Um, yeah, this is kind of an open and a big question, but what are your thoughts on this? Uh, the signal dropped there. Uh, I think I heard what you said. Hello? Yeah, hi. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, yeah, I think I heard your question. Um mm-hmm. I, I, okay. Well, this is my own opinion, of course. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we are ready. And the reason why we're ready is because there's a whole development of the awareness that even going back many decades, uh, we've had, what, 50% of the blockbusters are dealing with extraterrestrials. All right. So people are, you know, ordinary folk, the ordinary wife in the kitchen is probably familiar about ET. You know, <laughs> you know, there's, there's an emotional aspect to it. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that there is an awareness about there is other life out there. And even all the Roper polls over the decades, even recently, uh, people are saying, I think it was around 80% now, think, yeah, there has to be something out there. It can't be just us, you know, when we're dealing with all these thousands of planets that have been discovered in the last 10 years so yeah i i think we're ready for it uh now i mean the only the only thing is those that have hard beliefs in the many aspects of that to do with religion or whatever could have a hard time with this one <laughs> historically yeah, yeah. <laughs> however there are no. some religions where it is acceptable i mean even even the roman catholic church they're, they seem to be warming to this for the last 20 years. Um, uh, it's a big subject, but I think um, from a psychosocial point of view, globally, I think we'd accept this. And also it brings in, I, I think in a very optimistic way, not only a new level of awareness onto the planet that this has happened, but secondly, it, I, I think uh, the strife that's out there geopolitically could completely ease off the realization that you know that there are extraterrestrials here if they if it is extraterrestrial um and that um, they've been here quite a, quite a while but they haven't invaded us in all the hollywood movies it's all invasions or whatever so we're dealing with uh, a sort of fairly passive type of um intelligence that's there um so anyway, that's my take, and I, I'm optimistic. I, I think uh, contact would be wonderful, and also it'll bring us into the cosmic community. Hopefully, you know, from there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are voices out there that you know would claim that you know the entire, and I'm not really sure what to make of it, but the UAP abduction phenomenon. Uh, etc. It doesn't always have, um, you know, positive implications. Um, so, but this is again a different, perhaps a topic for a different um, time and day. Um, but I, I would concur that you know, if we have the awareness that there is something visiting us, not only the awareness but also um, the data to corroborate this, it is um, almost a moral imperative to. Um, you know, try some sort of communication with whatever that intelligence may be. I think, um, you know, it's just uh, within human nature to try and do that, and, and we should do it, yeah. So 
Thanks a lot, Eamon. I think um, I myself mm. pr learned a lot. I hope the audience as well. And um, it would be great to have you again, uh, on again, on a, another episode, perhaps next year, once your um, experiment, once you have more data on that with the uh, QSC. That would be lovely. Um, just um, where can people um, find, find out more about your work? Um, is there any websites you'd like to mention I can direct uh, people to, research papers you'd recommend? Um, I really don't know. Um, uh, well, we do have a website, SETI Kingsland, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, that needs to be upgraded, uh, and that's uh, what... Uh, it's uh, it's a few years behind um so um i think one has to be patient on this one um, um so yeah i think that might be one thing but uh you probably even just google me and yeah there, there's a number of presentations i've made interviews uh, i think yeah. apec would be one alternative pr mm -hmm. propulsion uh, sorry alternative propulsion energy conference uh, i've been on there twice now i think um mm -hmm. and there's certainly an insatiable appetite for this because uh, even when um i was on sky television last year now i i had a complete blank for 20 years of not dealing with media at all and then it happened last year and then that caused quite a a reaction for other media and then uh it came out in the irish independent there about three or four months back and there was a huge, uh, I think it was about 350,000 views. They said, that, uh, actually, the journalist came back to me and said, well, we were supposed to have this, well, we, they had a front headline of something important nationally. But he said, <laughs> in your case, uh, it was only 50% of the views uh, for the, for this big headline for the other stuff. But he said, the whole wow. UFAIR, she said, there's an ins this journalist said, to, he rang me up, he said, the editors were amazed of the reaction yeah. to this. So you can see yeah. deep down human beings, you know, they want to know more about this, not all the other, you know, political stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, and, and as he said, you're easily, you know, you can be found quite easily online. So, um, but I'll also put your, um, if that's all right with you, your um, uh, research gate profile online, because I think you've listed quite a few important papers there. So that definitely helped me a lot um, to learn about your work. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Eamon. And um, yeah, all the best for your work. It's very important. And um, yeah, hope to have you on again soon. Okay, Sebastian. Right. It's been a pleasure. Thank, Bye -bye. Thank you so much.